before we get into it, I just want to talk about audible.com because I love it. I do audiobooks all the time when I'm driving around LA. It's how I love to, it's, it's my preferred way to get books in, frankly. Specifically, I want to talk to you about Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. Now, I've put off reading this graphic novel and the series of novels because, well, I just got a lot going on, but I'm going to get it. It's in my pre-order list right now. Uh, you should think about it. If you've never used Audible, you get a free book and you can go to our website and click the link and use that to get your free book. We do get a little on the back end and we appreciate you for the support. So Neil Gaiman, I would also say Nor Norse Mythology, really good book. The Audible book is actually read by Neil himself. I really appreciate how he puts his personality into the writing. A little bit funny, uh, some new stories or, or twists, new twists on the stories. Uh, from the Norse world that my fantasy nerd self likes. All right. Welcome back. Here we are. Another episode of season four, which again is all about American ideals. And as we all know, there are so many shades in today's America. My favorite is when your intros are like super white and I'm just like, yeah, here we are, B. Look, we're here. Uh, see the shining sea. I've said it before. American ideals. Um, but look, we're about anchoring humanity and compassionate conversation. We are here to remind you that part of this American experience and even, even more than that, the human experience is compassion. That's right. And so today... But we're gonna we're we're with Ogie. This is a special recording. She created an amazing documentary called Invisible Portraits. You absolutely have to check this out. It's 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 documenting the the struggle of black women in the history of America and in the history of the world. I had a chance to watch it. It's amazing. Go check it out. Um, right now, you can check it out on Venmo um and and rent it or buy it um so we we talk with ogie about the film we talk about the emotional impact of creating that and what healing has looked like for her we talk about generational trauma and i tell you we got a list of things that we talk about in this episode and i'm not going to exhaust them here but it's an amazing conversation and we're excited to bring it to you today all right look once again quick reminder Go to moreincommonpod.com. You'll find us. You'll find all things more in common on your favorite podcast player. Make sure you just just give a rating, give a review, like, comment, share. Sharing super important. And thank you for helping us anchor humanity and compassionate conversation. Let's get it. Gil Scott Hearn said when he said the revolution won't be televised, like he meant that like, and he says this, like he means the revolution has to happen mentally first. And so, you know, I made it my life mission to continue to create content that elevates the voices of black women and that. All right, welcome back to More in Common. Today we are with Ogi Ibuno. Ogi is a filmmaker focused on disruptive, inspirational storytelling. By creating compelling content that entertains, educates, and inspires, she aims to support the healing of the individual and the collective. 
Prior to becoming an independent filmmaker, Ogie worked at the independent production company Rain Dog Films, where she produced films like Loving and Eye in the Sky. Ogie sat on the board of the Diversity Committee for the Brit Awards, where she collaborated to revamp the Voting Academy and tackling diversity within the music and film industries. She graduated with a Bachelor, Art, Bachelor of Arts in Communication from the University of Houston. And as of June 19th, 2020, Juneteenth, after nearly three years in the making, her directorial debut, Invisible Portraits, came to life. The documentary is a powerful celebration of Black women featuring interviews from scholars and authors sharing their stories of struggle, celebration, heartache, and more. It shatters the too often invisible otherizing of Black women in America and illuminates the history of how we got here, dismantles the false framework of the present day reality, celebrates the extraordinary heritage of exceptional Black women, and ignites hope for the next generation. Ogie spent eight months doing intensive research and two months conducting these compelling interviews. And personally, I will say it is an absolute must see. And so after a few weeks of collaboration um, with her team, we are thrilled to finally be talking to Ogie today. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It is an absolute pleasure. So first question to kick us off. Um, the reality, as your documentary um, so delicately balances the struggle and the power and the beauty of it all, but Black women have been overshadowed by just about everything in this country and globally. Uh, the, the turmoil and oppression of Black women globally is one of the biggest tragedies in the history of civilization. Um, and it's seldom, it's rarely told. So you actually mentioned in another interview that the start of this project wasn't easy for you since you hadn't directed before. But once you got into the research, I'm curious how hard it has been to shoulder the amazing power this film's potential has to shed light on the oppressive history, but also the accomplished history of Black women. Yeah, um, it's been hard. Um, I mean, when I started doing the research of this um, three months into it, I had to put myself back into therapy um, because holding the stories and the emotions of these women that I was reading about from reading, you know, reading slave narratives, um, reading about eight-year-old, nine-year-old girls being raped and having to give birth at the age of 10, reading about Black women um, seeing their entire families being lynched in front of them, reading about Black mothers witnessing their children being sold um, on selling blocks. It was a lot to hold. It was a lot to carry. And during the, the research phase of it all, um, I dedicated six days a week, 14-hour days to doing this research. So reading these books, reading slave narratives, um, going to archival centers, um, and I found myself on the day that I chose to rest, which is Sunday, like I found myself not being able to get out of bed. I was quite debilitated by all the things that I was reading. And I realized that like, if I was to continue with this project, I had to find another outlet. And so I had to get back into therapy, which is what saved me <laughs> and which is what allowed this film to come into fruition. Um, and, you know, it's, it's still 
hard and heavy to hold, especially when you hear about cases like Breonna Taylor's case. I think that's a clear example of the continued erasure of Black women, um, which is so unfortunate. And so, you know, I made it my life mission to continue to create content that elevates the voices of Black women and that, you know, hold reverence for Black women. In the lead up to all of this, you mentioned that w one of the things that keeps you going is stories of your ancestors. Um, how does that work for you, especially given that, I mean, when you start talking about it, I start, I actually, I, I checked my heart rate, my heart started going a little bit faster because um, it gives me a, I think maybe anxiety, I don't know, something like that, like think, hearing, just hearing all that, like not even researching it uh, or seeing it. Um, how do, how do you harness that into energy to keep going? How does that work for you? Um, I, I think like for me, the way that it has worked and continues to work is that um, I don't have a choice but to find a way to harness what some may consider low vibrational energies into a way that allows me to speak their truth. Um, I tend to see myself as a vessel for these stories and for these women and young girls who didn't have a voice at that time. And so hearing their stories now and educating myself on their stories and reading about the things they went through, um, my life pales in comparison to that. And so when I do find the moments where I feel like I'm feeling defeated or I'm emotionally drained or I'm emotionally exhausted, I think about their stories where they didn't have a choice. And so that gives me the motivation and the fuel that I need to keep going. Um, because once again, I see myself as a vessel for their stories. So there is no world where I allow the silence of their voices to continue. What? <clears throat> the, Hold oh, on. go ahead. One sec, sorry, sorry, just on that. Yeah. Um, because I kind of want to talk about the therapy component just for a second, if, you, if oh, you're willing, if you want to go into yeah. that. Yeah, I love it. So you can take it wherever you want, man. We've been twin brains, so <laughs> even though we're obviously not twins. Um, so you said back in a therapy, so you've done therapy prior, so you had some kind of a understanding as to like how it could help. What? How did... Was it a quick, so you're doing, so you said six hour days researching. 14, 14 hour days, six days, days a week. Four, yeah, there we go. Flipping in. Okay. <laughs> 14 hour days. Uh, was that like the first Sunday when you couldn't get out of bed? Were you like, oh no, I, I got to talk to somebody, I got to get some help. Or like, how did that, how did that happen specifically? It was about three months into it. Um, because the first few Sundays that I couldn't get out of bed, I was like, this is weird, but I was like, I've, I've always, um, I've experienced depression for quite a bit of my life. And so I, I didn't know if that was that coming up or what was happening in that space. So I tried to figure it out myself in the first month, but then by month two, it got really bad where I was now like crying heavily in bed until like the afternoon. And so I realized like, oh, like this is a lot deeper than what I think it is. And I need to speak to a professional to really sort out what I'm holding and what I'm carrying. And so it was like the, around the end of the second month, the beginning of the third month that I was like, okay, Ogie, like you have to get back into therapy. Like this is not, you can't do this on your own. And so, you know, 
I looked for a therapist um, and I found one that I felt um, could help me because I was very intentional on wanting to pick it, wanting um, the therapist to be a woman and more particularly a black woman. But when I was reaching out to black women therapists in LA, like they were all like booked up. Like they were like, you know, I, I, I don't, I can't see you for the, like the next year or a few months. And so I know I, I knew I needed to see a therapist ASAP. And so I found this woman of Indian descent who became my therapist. Um, and it, yeah, it worked. Huh. So what, we talk a lot about mental health on our episode, on our show. Um, so we, we tend to go down this, this, uh, this slide a little bit, but what was it that was it depression? And on Sunday, when it reached that level, how did you keep going on Monday to pick up the new six day cycle? Before, or after Before therapy. therapy, before therapy. Um, I mean, it was hard, right? Mondays were always hard and dreadful after the Sundays because, like I said, like Sundays, I literally was in bed until like 4 p.m., if that, and I wasn't eating and I was losing a lot of weight. Um, and so Mondays were quite dreadful for me. Um, but once again, like even when I woke up Mondays and I would wake up most of Mondays in tears, I just remember like, okay, Ogie, like you're a vessel for these voices. Like you have to figure it out. And, you know, it plays into this, the notion of the documentary of the resiliency of black women, like there was no other option. So even in the midst of me feeling very exhausted, even in the midst of me feeling depressed and depleted, I had to find a way to figure it out. So I would just get up, you know, tears and all and shower tears and all, and then start reading tears and all, you know, or going to libraries tears and all. So it wasn't a Monday came and it did, those emotions went away. They stayed, but I just had to persevere and push through it. Yeah. So many days it's me reading and highlighting and tears are like hitting the page, mm. you know, but I just, I, I had to continue. So the stories of your ancestors keeping you going literally kept you going. Like, yeah. Mm. And the ancestors of, I, I tend to say the women that I read about, yeah. I call them my ancestors too. Yeah. Like, you know, when I think about Fannie Lou Hamer and Ella Baker and all these women, Harriet Tubman, I consider them to be my ancestors too. And so their stories um, affected me deeply. It's um, one of the things that for me that um, so hit me watching the film that I don't think we effectively talk about in our country is how generational trauma actually affects the modern day individual. And I will tell you in your film, you bring that to life in a way that I haven't seen before personally. Um, because, you know, so especially white folks be like, well, slavery's over, Jim Crow's over, all that stuff is over. Cool. Um, not a comprehensive enough conversation. Like, that's what I, I I just personally love about that movie is it really talks about that at its at an emotional level of the impact that four hundred and one years has on uh, uh, especially a black woman in twenty twenty. Um, it's not just I mean, about your everyday. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. If you were gonna say something, 
You know, I was just going to say like, yeah, you know, society and history books will have you believe that, you know, that happened 40 years ago, that happened 100 years ago, you should be right. over it. And that's not how it works. Like it, it doesn't work that way. And when you actually do the history and the research, um, you realize that that is like embedded in your DNA. Um, Post-traumatic slave syndrome is real. And reading Dr. Joy DeGruy's book on that literally rearranged me in the most profound way because it gave voice and language to what I've always felt and what I felt other Black folks have always felt, particularly Black women. And so for me, I, I was like, I got to get her in this documentary. I don't know how we're going to do it, but <laughs> I got to make her, I got to figure out a way to get her to say yes. And, you know, when she did, I was so deeply honored because I think in her book, the things that she tackled regarding generational trauma um, and the healing that needs to occur is important. You know, it's really, really important. And we don't, we don't talk about that enough. Like we don't talk enough about how having a video go viral of a black folk, a black man or a woman being killed affects you mentally and emotionally. And it will years down the line, especially when it continues to go viral, you know? So for me, I wanted to make sure that we really discussed that in the documentary. I'm just now, I just turned 38. I'm just now in the last year and a half starting to understand like how all this affects me. Like I, it was specifically after Garner, after Eric Garner that I stopped watching the videos. I will not watch them unless I just, it's on and I can't avoid, like it, I can't, even then I can avoid, I can close my eyes. Um, I, uh, I, I can't, it destroys me. Like I, I can't handle it, um, and uh, and like the years of that over and over. Not to mention like the historical context, or explaining that to somebody who doesn't have the historical context for whatever reason. Um, it's it is uh, yeah. Like I'm just starting to understand it. And then there's that like that Baldwin quote about um, I'm gonna butcher it, but about like you know the the educated black man or black person in the States, like, how could you not be angry if you know what's going on? Like, you're in a constant state of rage. I have just now uncovered that it's always been there. Like, it's just, it's just been there. It's just like, bam, I could go off like a volcano, but like seeing it and Keith has seen it recently where it's like, cause we do these like, the top of our company meetings, we have a, a, a check-in like on our mental state. And I'm like, it's the weirdest thing. Like we, the first thing that comes up is anger. And it's like, on a scale of one to 10, what's your anger? And I'm like, man, I'm like sitting at five. Like, I'm not mad as I'm telling you that, but I can tell I'm sitting at five. And it's just like the wrong word, I'm a 20. Like, it's just like yeah. that. And and I'm just now sensing that at 30, 37, 38 years old. Um, and that's sad to me. You, um, yeah. oh, go ahead, Ogie. No, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask you a question. So if you had a comment. No, I was just saying like, you know, I, I get that. And I think um, like for me, when I was first doing the research phase, I was 32 and I was so angry at myself and so disappointed that I didn't know 60% of what I was learning, you know, and I felt this deep, deep level of shame. But then I had to really sit with that. And I realized that, you know, the things that we're taught in school is revisionist history, right? Like we're not really taught the history of this country and we're damn sure not taught the history of black folks in this country 
or indigenous people in this country. So, you know, in knowing that, that gave me the grace and the permission to go and seek that information and to find a way to re-educate society in a way that was palpable for them to be able to take. Because I know in the documentary, we hit some hard subjects and it's hard to sit through, but that's also the history of it. That's the truth of it. And not everything is going to be comfortable. Not everything is going to be light and easy. And one thing I will say is that with this pandemic, I think the pandemic laid the foundation for people to really start to do the work, right? To really start to like ask the questions and to question everything that we've been told to be true. And so with that laying the foundation and then these murders continue to happen and be filmed and going viral, I think that's what sparked the, this whole revolution that we're now seeing and this uprising. And now people are really just like questioning being like, like, what the hell? Like, you would think that a lot of white folks just woke up yesterday or was just born yesterday because they're like, well, how is this even possible? Like, how is this happening? Like, what can I do? And, you know, it's fortunate and unfortunate, right? Because it's like, yo, I've been living with this for the past, what, 35 years? And you're just now realizing this. But then it's also like, I'm glad you're now waking up to the fact that, like, a, a, the life of certain demographics isn't as privileged as the one that you're experiencing, you know? It's such a weird feeling realizing both those things in the conversation like how did you not know this i gotta tell you and then i don't know it. how you both handle it with such grace at least in this conversation frustrates the hell out of me like it is it's annoying and i did but i mean you're probably used to it whereas it, i'm not and it's like I, I don't understand why this is new news um i mean i live with the much worse version where nobody got it yeah so it was like well this is an improvement yeah as, yeah. you know, but kind of like what you were saying, Ogie, like, what's the what's the alternative? Yeah. It's like, a, it's at least a step in the positive direction. And I, 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 one of the I, things that I like to hammer with um, the white with our white audience or anybody who's listening that is grappling with the understanding of generational trauma, we all experience generational trauma with our families. Like your parents pass down garbage that their parents pass down to you that their parents pass down to them. And maybe there's a small break in each chain along the way, or maybe a big break and you have the outcasted family member who didn't necessarily conform to the family ideals. Then add slavery on top of that. And everything that goes into the history of oppression being treated as property and, and, as your film talks about the hard topics about rape and the treatment, I and mean, what was it? What was it? A hundred thousand or four hundred thousand um, biracial babies due to census data of the time. Six hundred and ninety. Six hundred ninety thousand, and yet, you know, that didn't happen, right? Like, it. It is so important like i just want the audience to just sit with that as they grapple with understanding this more um and that you know watch the film because this film will help you do it um but i i did have a uh, a question about shame and how you sit with it this is more of a personal question because i have a hard time sitting with it yeah, um, I do too. I don't think there is any easy way to sit with shame. I think for me, what has helped 
is first being able to acknowledge what it is. Cause I think a lot of us, you know, well, I can speak for me in particular. Um, I didn't have the tools to be able to really articulate what the emotions were that I was feeling because I wasn't taught emotional intelligence mm -hmm. as a kid growing up, which I think should be taught in every mm -hmm. school. Um, and so like you experience these plethoras of emotions and you, but you don't know how to label it per se. Like you don't know the difference between shame and depression and sadness and joy. Like I, I wasn't able to really give voice and language to it until I got into therapy. And so that is what really, really helped me. Um, and it wasn't easy. Cause like I got shame for my family. Like I, I'm Nigerian. Both my parents are from Nigeria and me and my brother are first generation, um, Americans. And when I told my mom I was getting into therapy, well, rather I told her I was in therapy because I knew that that wasn't a conversation I needed to have with her because it wouldn't go well. So when I got into therapy, I told her and like, she immediately lost mm. it. She was just like, like, was I not a good mother to you? Like what, like what? And I'm like, wait, what? I'm like, why is this now all about you? Like this had, but this is a prime example of why I'm in therapy. And so getting into therapy gave me the language and the tools that I needed to be able to examine and analyze what was coming up for me because I didn't know how to do that before. I used to just stonewall. Like I would just feel whatever these feelings were and because they were too much for me, I was just shut down. And so people in my life was like, and friends who cared about me and partners was just like, like, can you not communicate? Like, why are you just shutting down? And for me, that was the only way I knew to communicate because I didn't have the tools and the language to truly articulate what I was feeling whether it was shame or whether it was anger or resentment. And so therapy gave me permission to not only sit with those emotions, but it gave me the language to be able to articulate what it was I was feeling. And in doing that gave me permission to heal. So I was able to be like, okay, this is what shame feels like. Um, what is the root cause of this? Like, where is this coming from? And then, you know, like what, what has triggered it? And it allowed me to really explore the different avenues of what was causing it to come up. And then that gave me um, solutions or ways to resolve it. How do you resolve it now that you've done all that work? Do you have any tricks the shame for yourself? Part? Yeah. Yeah. Well, when it comes to shame, um, one of the ways I resolve it is giving myself the understanding of knowing that everyone experiences that, mm. right? This is not something that only I am experiencing and going through. And I think when you when you do that, it gives you the permission to be like, oh, there's not something wrong with me, right? Like this is a natural occurrence. Um, and it makes me realize that like, you know, in life there'll be ebbs and flows, right? Like life is never linear, right? It literally is ebbs and flows. And I think when you understand that, and when these things come up for me, like for example, for shame, I'm able to get out of the ebb a lot quicker than I used to be and get back into mm -hmm. the flow. And so, you know, it once again, with when it comes to shame, it just allows me to know that like I am not the only one experiencing this. And then I sit with like, okay, why do I feel shameful? Like, for example, with the the research of this movie, I felt shame and not knowing the history at the age of 32. And the way that I resolved that was understanding that, okay, Ogi, you were taught revisionist history. Like it really isn't your fault, but now that you know, what can you do? And so that gave me the empowerment I need to be able to redirect um, that energy that I was feeling. Almost seems like a little bit of a um, examining the feeling. Like, is it true? Or if it's true, why is it true? Like, like why? Yeah. Like why? Okay, you're shame. You're shame because 
didn't know this, but why didn't you know it? Like, like exactly more to that. Um, like, is it really your fault? That exactly. And sometimes the answer is like, yeah, it's your fault. But then again, it's like, it's okay if <laughs> it is, right? It? Like, yeah. yeah, how are you going to fix it? Yeah. Then that, that slips into guilt a little bit, which uh, can be a valid, I mean, very- A little more of a motivator. Valid, but it can be a help. Yeah. Well, uh, man. Um, that's, uh, that's, that's good stuff on shame. I've, 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 I appreciate your openness about shame. That's a hard yeah. emotion for a lot of people to talk about, including me. And I talk about it with Rodney all the time. It is a uh, we do not easy. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, no, like you know, we it's unfortunate because we live in a society that doesn't allow us to explore mm -hmm. that, right? And so when people start to feel that, they feel like it's only them and they have to figure it out. But you're like, no, it's a universal feeling. That's why I think the the teaching of emotional intelligence, the teaching of mental health is really, really important. Because when you understand like the most powerful currents we, we have is our mental state. And I think when you truly, truly understand that, it gives you permission to live life unapologetically. It gives you permission to know like, yeah, I have a right to be anger, angry sometimes. And when those emotions come up, it's okay. When shame comes up, it's okay. Um, all those things are okay. And so, you know, once you know it's okay, then I think that's where you're given a space to be creative and finding solutions and answers to why those emotions are currently present. What was, um, yes. I'm curious. So I don't know if it's on the line here. So I'm just, I'm, I'm curious how it relates. So Michael Meyer, um, the, the financier of the movie, um, white guy came to you and said, I want to write a film about black mothers in particular after whose hall of fame speech was he listening? Isaiah, Isaiah Thomas. Thomas. That's right. Um, what did that have any effect on you in this process being that he's a white fella and he came to you with the, obviously you took it and said, no, it's going to be about black women. Um, but I'm just curious about that more than anything. And I don't know if it falls into this line at all, um, but it makes me think of the question. Yeah, it made me curious. Yeah. Um, so I went into the meeting not knowing him. Um, and the woman who introduced us, I barely knew her. Like I just met her a few months ago at a charity event. Um, and so when I sat down and he told me that's what he wanted to create, the first thing I said is why. Mm -hmm. I was like, no disrespect, but like, why? And he was like, and he started telling me about the Isaiah Thomas speech and, you know, how that moved him. But then I was like, there has to be more. Like, why? Like, that, I, it's not resonating for me that that is the only thing that has motivated you to want to mm. do this. And he just was like, you know, I've been sitting with this idea for about 10 or plus years. And I was like, but why? Once again. And it wasn't even in that meeting. It was like months down the line because I kept being like, but why? Like, there has to be more. And then I found out. He had a um, a nanny, um, which was a black mm -hmm. mother, and she would basically spend all her time helping to raise him and his siblings at the cost of her own family. And I was like, now that makes sense mm -hmm. to me. Like now I get why you're inspired. And this to him was a offering to her to be like, thank you. Oh, wow. Like, you know, like I see what you did for me and my family now as an adult. I understand the sacrifices you made. And so I want to honor you and say thank you. And that 
made sense to me. And I was like, got it. How has he? Is that your natural instinct to ask why? Yeah, always. Yeah. It's a, it's a good instinct. I don't think well, I started studying um, Maslow's theory, like, like when I was like in the what, third grade uh-huh. is when I was first introduced to it. And so I've always led my life with this whole idea of self-actualization and understanding and trying to understand what that meant. Like, obviously, like when I was introduced to it and, and, and like elementary, I was like, wait, this is interesting. And then through my life, I just kept it kept coming back, coming back. And it wasn't until like probably like college is when it really hit me like okay you need to really study this you need to really figure out what this means like what does all of this means and that led me into social constructs that led me into ideology that led me into propaganda and understanding how that works um that led me into studying bernays and then when i started to really understand this i was like oh i just start to question everything have you talked to him since the movie came out and i'd be curious to I don't know if it's relevant makes the the interview, but the response he might have had to the Aunt Jemima first twenty minutes um, mammy segments of the movie. Who Michael? Michael? Yeah. yeah, I've spoken to him. We speak like every other um, day um, because we're still in. I'm still um, figuring out distribution yeah. and things like that, so we speak daily. Well, every other day, um, and yeah, his. So Michael saw it before I picture locked it. Um, and there's a little bit that changed after picture, um, um, after he saw it before that. But when he saw it initially, I remember his reaction was kind of like, oh, okay. Mm. This is not what I expected, but okay. Huh. And I was just like, this is it. You know, like, (laughs) I think it's wonderful, but I mean, I can get that it makes you uncomfortable. And I was like, I told him, I was like, let me be very clear that you can remove your name from this project if you don't like it. But this is my vision and this is what I am seeing as regards to like how I tell the truth of black women. And so he was like, oh no, 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 I don't wanna remove my name. Like I just wanna sit with it for a while. And it wasn't until he wanted to do like a screening for like some of his close friends and family who he trusted. And it wasn't until they saw it. And then they were like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like this is incredible. Um, That I think it gave him the confidence that he needed to be like, oh, okay, this is great. Um, and ever since then, he's just been like, you know, my biggest fan and supporter. Um, so yeah. Yeah. You just brought up Aunt Jemima. Did you see that, la- was it last week? Last yeah, week. Changing, changing the name. Your name, yeah. the name and the image. Yeah, I did. Which years. I, 130 years. Yeah. And you know, for me, it's just like, okay, and what? Like, I, I don't think, for me, you don't get, um, a pat on the back for that. Like to me, what would be impressive is if you took the money, the money that you made, and reimbursed it back into the women whose likenesses you used. Like if you funded their estates, um, that to me is worth me acknowledging. You just changing the name after 150 years of making billions off their likeness doesn't do anything for me. My wife and I have been talking about this because she has. There are people she knows um, who are very upset by this. And she is trying to fundamentally understand why they're so upset by it. Um, it's a fascinating human psychology to to try and understand it, which I don't. But um, no, I, I agree. It's like, thanks for changing the name, but it's been a while. 
and we've known it's been a problem for a while. Why now? Right. Yeah. Well, we know, well, why, we know now, why now, but, but still, again, yeah, why, and, why now? and that's how you, and that's how you know the difference between companies and corporations and people who are actually doing the work to awakening versus performance of allyship. What they're doing is performative allyship because you're just saying because it's trendy right now and we want to seem like we're like we're woke. We're going to change the name and all that. Like that's performative. Like what real change looks like is you investing in black communities. So invest into the women likenesses who you use, invest into those estates like that to me shows that you're actually awakening up to the fact of what you what of what you've been doing is unjust and unfair. But until you do that, it's performative change the name and what else? Like that literally means nothing. You make billions off these women's likenesses, you know? Mm -hmm. um, um, it's, there was this, I saw this TikTok uh, black woman did. She was like, I got to find it. Um, it was like some trendy music in the background. And it was like companies floating in from one side. And then she's like graphic designers. And then it was like, handshake and like an image of a handshake and she's like all right now back to business as usual just like yeah, yeah exactly yeah. 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 It, it, time will tell so what was it like i mean this ability i i the ability to look at michael and say thanks for your interest in my directorial debut but why not only why this is the movie i'm gonna make by the way, this is the movie I made. Um, your first generation. Like, what was it like for you growing up that has given you that confidence to be able to just say, I mean, in essence, the belief in yourself that the vision you have is the way it needs to be? Um, I think it's just like I... I've like cultivated this life where I like my life is just unconventional. Like I don't wait for people to give me permission to do things. Um, and I think that spearheaded from my childhood. My, my, my father wasn't around. Um, my mom divorced him when I was born because he was physically and emotionally abusive. Um, and so my mother raised me and my two brothers, but she wasn't there. Not only was she physically not present, she wasn't emotionally present. Um, physically not there because she had to work multiple jobs to support me and my two brothers. Emotionally not there because she had experienced abuse um, on a, a very intense level for four years in a country where she knew no one and never got therapy and healing from that. So she wasn't emotionally available. So I grew up feeling very invisible. Like I grew up feeling like not, like I, I wasn't seen. And the only way that I could be seen is that if I was perfect. So I always had straight A's. Like I always, you know, was the perfect person growing up until like I got to high school and I was like, this shit sucks. Like this is, this isn't me. Like I, this doesn't feel good. Um, and then I just start to question everything and be like, well, why? And it was in that, that turning point for me that I was just like, I'm just going to always live life the way that I want to. And then people get it, they get it. And if they don't, they don't. And so it's led me to just jump ship and move from Texas to California. Um, it led me to teaching yoga and then doing that and moving to London and working in film to now, you know, meeting Michael and hearing his vision and then saying, but I think this is better. 
Um, and yeah, I just, I try to live life um, as authentically as I can. And uh, when you got to high school and you were like, this sucks, this isn't me, was there a specific moment or was it a culmination? Of, <laughs> was it a culmination of moments? Because uh, like, um, yeah, yeah. I would just say it was a culmination of moments. Because like I said, like I kept, I grew up feeling like I had to be perfect and had to have straight A's. So, like I went to a magnet school for middle school and then for high school, I went to, uh, it was a, it's like a private school, but it wasn't, it was called Michael E. DeBakey High School for Health Profession. And in the 10th grade, we started doing like clinical rotations. So like starting your 10th through 12th grade year, you basically are in med school while you're in high school. And I was doing all that because my mom was a nurse. And so she wanted me to be a doctor. So like she was vicariously living through me and it sucked. Cause I was like, I don't want to do this. Like this doesn't make me feel good. It doesn't bring me joy. Um, all my life, I just felt like I just didn't know myself. Like I felt so lost. And it wasn't until high school that I was just like, okay, um, this sucks and I don't want to do this anymore. And I want to figure out who I am. Um, and so I just started trying to figure that out and I'm still figuring it out. Like I don't, I, I feel like within the last year, I'm just now coming into myself. Um, and understanding who I am as Ogi um, versus who others want me to be. And that hasn't been an easy journey. We, uh, we're on, yeah, I we're get, there. I, um, I ask because uh, like I, w- I would pay money to have had that realization in high school. I just kept going with the grades and the stuff and the, all that until recently Until three years ago um, we decided to start a podcast and it kicked off a journey of self-discovery that we never thought we would be on yeah deconstructing those moments has become important and and to keith's point about starting three years ago we we started specifically on the hills of kaepernick protesting the anthem uh because of conversations we had and it's like we figured we would just talk about race in every episode, which we're doing a lot. However, the mental component you can't get away from with humans. Like it's like, you can't even talk about race with somebody who can't see themselves or understand who they are in this moment that you're talking to them. It's like, you can't pull them apart. And uh, so completely. Yeah. So just pulling apart those moments. I mean, neither of us are psychologists, but it's just fascinating to, to, when people have enough whatever chutzpah inside themselves to just like pull themselves out of that kind of a malaise uh, is fascinating to me. But it just shows you too, like how conditioned Mm -hmm. we are, right? Like it it goes back to what Gil Scott Hearn said when he said the revolution won't be televised. Like he meant that like, and he says this, like he means the revolution has to happen mentally first. Mm -hmm. Like you can't join collective liberation if you're mentally um, still in bondage, right? So like it has to be a mental revolution that has to happen for it to even show up in the exterior. And when you really just do the work and start to just understand the power um, and just the, the strength in our mental currency, like literally when you get that, like for me, like you realize that like you can change the world, right? Like that's how those people that we consider to be incredible, um, that's what that's what it was, right? Like, cause no one is just like, we like to put idols, call them idols and put them on this pedestal, but they're just ordinary people who got it. 
who understood the power of their mental currency and realized that like all conditioning is is someone else's experiences that's been passed down to us, right? Like it's understanding that like this world that we live in is a social construct. It's someone's imagination. Like we have these headphones because someone imagined it to be true, right? Like we're all talking through these different technologies because someone imagined it to be true. Like I'm wearing this gold necklace because someone imagined gold necklaces to be true. And so when you understand that, like truly get it, like literally it's, everything is limitless. Like when I got that, I was like, oh, game over. It's um, there, this conversation yeah, uh, especially in the past, I don't know, we'll say six months. Like the idea to your point, Rodney, talking to people, so many of us live in the malaise of what we were taught. No, it's true. I, I, like, I, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say that this, this society thrives off a of limited imagination, right? It thrives off the conditioning of people, um, which is why I think they don't teach emotional intelligence in school, which is why they don't teach you the true power of your mental state, because it doesn't serve the current society and system that is operating. And so that's why I think it's important that we have these conversations and that there is more education on what a social construct is, more conversation on us reimagining what's possible, more conversation on collective liberation, um, because it is possible. And I think if more people understood the power that they each individually hold, that more would happen. And I think that that's kind of happening now, which is how you have this uprising that's happening. Cause people are like, wait, 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 wait. This shit is weird. Like this ain't like, what? Like this can't be, this can't be real. And so then you got people now, once again, questioning everything that they've been told to be true. And there's power in that. And I just hope that people don't lose the momentum in that and go back to things being normal. I hope that people continue to realize that there's power in our, in our mental state and when we are in that mental state collectively, we're even more powerful. Completely agree. And it's funny because even in the construct of democracy, individuals have power if they speak up, like yeah. if they actually exercise their democratic rights. It's so it's kind of interesting. It's like social construct, like they're, I, I don't know, like the way I grew up, like thinking about or using the term almost had a negative connotation to it, but it's more like, no, nah, it just is. But if you recognize that it is, then you can move in and out of it as you see fit. Like you don't have to subscribe to it subconsciously or unconsciously. And Rodney Rodney tries yeah. to rewire me still to this day um, that it isn't a zero sum game, right? And we don't have a limit. I mean, we don't have limited intellectual property. Like we all have our ability to contribute and do do what we need and and pursue it and we're at a time right now where that is more possible than it ever has been and now you have generate generations of gen z and the younger millennials who truly understand that power and it's going to make a lot of people uncomfortable oh a lot of people Speaking of that and making people uncomfortable, you said something you're interested in right now is queer theory and black liberation. Um, I'm going to be super honest. I don't know what queer theory is, and I would love to learn. So queer theory is basically just the theory of what it means to be queer, right? Like I, I just came into the unveiling of myself as a queer. Um, prior to me doing this documentary and doing the research, like I lived a very heteronormative lifestyle um, and I identified 
as a cisgender woman that just dated men. And a lot has changed for me in that moment. Um, like I felt like this whole process for me has been a, a rebirth um, for me on a personal and professional level. Um, and so when you think about um, the new um, ideologies that's starting to manifest, a lot of that comes from queer theory. It comes from the, the teachings and the readings of Angela Davis. It comes from the teachings and readings of Audre Lorde. Um, you know, because when you've been oppressed in so many different ways, you start to look at liberation completely different and you understand that no one is free unless we're all free. And so those those ideologies are built around that. It's built upon that. When you think about, you know, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter was founded by three Black queer women. You know, like they, it, it came to a point where they feel like they had to reimagine something completely different for Black lives. Hence Black Lives Matter and this whole, you know, revolution that started because of that. And so for me, um, when I was doing the research for this documentary and I was reading the writings of Audre Lorde, reading the writings of, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer and all these incredible women, um, I just started to look at myself differently and question, once again, all the things I've been told to be true. Um, question like, oh, okay, like, are you, you know, like, I, I don't know. I just, I started to question everything. Um, and then I had my first queer relationship. Um, and that just opened my eyes to just a whole new dynamic of a way of being in the world. And that's what led me to start to research and study queer theory. It's kind of interesting. Um, this whole period of like, I don't know, you call it raised consciousness or just like more people getting woke or like whatever's happening right now globally, not just in the US. Uh, I, like I've experienced it because like I've always felt the black experience to some degree, like from my personal experience, but like it's it's caused me to question how I show up for other people, especially talking to Keith and a lot of my white colleagues and wife mm -hmm. for that matter about like, what does it mean to be an ally? Or like, how do you show up for black people has made me question, how do I show up for women? Or how have I not shown up for women? How have I not shown up for uh, the queer community, homosexuals? And, my, and so like, there was a conversation that came up in uh, LinkedIn and it was like, the guy was questioning like, why are we talking about sexuality at work? And I was like, it was just like it was almost like this moment of inspiration where it's like, hold up, bro. Like as a as a straight dude, like we talk about sexuality at work all the time. time. Like we talk about our wives. We talk about our girlfriends. We talk about our children. Like we talk about mm -hmm. all these things that are directly related to sexuality that, frankly, other people probably don't even care about. But we just throw them out there because there's no penalty for us talking about them, whereas there could be and is a penalty for other people talking about them. And. Yeah. It was just like this spark. I was like, holy shit, I've been doing this my whole life. Like, I never even thought about it. And yeah. but it's, so it's, it's where it's like my, I'm being challenged even in this moment where I feel like black lives are like being talked about. Like, it's like, well, that's not it. Like, it's kind of like a, a beachhead or like an arrow, like to open up all these other conversations that were, that we had never had, honestly. Uh, yeah. I mean, it makes you think about too, like Toyin, the young black activist who was protesting the killings who eventually end up being murdered by a black man, right? So like, mm -hmm. it's understanding that like, when we say black lives matter, it means that all black lives matter, not just cis black men and women, 
black trans women, black trans men, like all li- all black lives matter. And so I think that having those kind of conversations with people is important because I think typically when people say black lives matter, they're thinking about cis black men mm-hmm. and women. Um, they're not thinking about, you know, um, our trans sisters and brothers who are being murdered at an alarming rate at the current moment. So it's about expanding that and understanding that it's not just limited to the binary, right? It goes beyond that. It's um, There's a guy I follow who called that out, that specific incident, a black man, a straight black man. He was like, yo, he's like, if you're for, if you down with this, first, first of all, like how big of a man are you that you got to go kick on a woman? Secondly, uh, if you say all black lives matter, then literally like you don't have to agree with them, but like all black lives matter, period. Like yeah. it's either they do or they don't. And he's like, and if you don't think that, like, you, if that's your action, then like, go step on the other side of the line with the KKK, because like that's what they think. So yeah. it's it's that is that right there is binary. It's like they do or they it's don't. It's speaking to just that concept of um, social constructs. Like, normal is a social construct, right? Like exactly the the idea. You know, I think since. Google and Yahoo, the nerds kind of got became the the future normal. And but there's there's always this underlying presence of of judgment in every society since the dawn of time. And we're kind of at this, this influx point, or I hope we are, where judgment and criticism are reserved for those who harm others. And only for those who harm others, not for those who live a different life, are a different life, or just they look different, act different, smell different, um, whatever it may be. Because uh, at some point, we, we have to normalize humanity and understand the oppression that so many people have experienced, especially in this country, to, to understand how we move forward. And it's a social construct. We can do it. It's not... It's not, yeah. it's not pretend. Well, in a way, it kind of is, right? It's all kind of pretend, right? Um, social constructs. That I'm, that is. Um, yeah. So now that you've um, put the movie out there, how have you been received and how has it been received? Um, the, the film has been received like in the most beautiful and incredible ways. Um, I mean, every press outlet that's written about it has nothing but rave reviews on it. Um, the people that have seen it that DM me and email me, I mean, I just get the most heartfelt messages from just an eclectic group of people. Um, and so the film has been received very, very well. Um, I, on the other hand, I mean, I've been received well too, but also I I don't think that because we haven't, um, because it's currently only on Vimeo and not on other platforms yet, I think once it expands on other platforms and it'll have a wider embrace. Um, in regards to me, like I, I just been so busy that I, this weekend was the first time that I've had a moment to just really sit with it and sit with the idea that it's out there now, right? Like I've been birthed in this for almost three years now and now it's yours, you know? And so it still feels a bit surreal and it really hasn't sunken in yet. Um, and yeah, like I'm, I'm still processing it. It hasn't really hit me yet that I've had my directorial debut. Mm. You said something there. Um, now it's yours, not mine. Um, during the process, do you, 
do you feel a sense of possession on it? And not in an acoustic way, but just like, this is kind of my baby. This is, and then now you have to trust it with other people or. Um, it's not so much trusting with other people. So I still, I do feel like it. it's my yeah. child, right? Like I feel like I had the gestation period with it and now I've birthed it into the world. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, when I say it's yours, like it's in the yeah. world, right? And people will experience it the way that they experience it. It depends on, you know, the state that they're in when they watch it. So I, I mean, I don't worry about that yeah. though. Like I, I feel very confident in what I've created. I felt that the ancestors are proud of me of what I've created. I feel that black women um, will now start to feel, you know, seen and heard and acknowledged. And that makes me happy. Um, if nothing else happens for the film, that alone is enough for me. And if you haven't learned about Amazing Grace, um, mind blown. Uh, oh, you didn't know that? No. You don't know that? No. I, I, I mean, I, I just say I, I, I do now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a question. A thing that I've been wrestling with. I was talking to my mom about this the other day. Uh, I had this weird tweet go viral. Keith, she's just checking her dog. That's no. Oh yeah. <laughs> every time I every time I get up, I'm checking. My, it's a new, thank you for saying it's a that. Newborn I've been wondering. Like, I I know you're here, but I'm like, oh, I wonder what's going on back there. Oh yeah, I think you logged off yeah, when, I, exactly. when I said what I was yeah. doing. It's a newborn she puppy, a new puppy, and she's just like she won't go in her crate or her playpen mm. without barking. So I was like, you can stay here next to me, but I just want to make sure she's not pissing or pooping, mm. and so I keep checking to make sure. <laughs> Okay. You gotta take her. You gotta get her. Just grab her. Um, something, something I've been debating, uh, like internally, is uh, so I told you I don't watch the vi I don't watch the murder snuff videos anymore. I don't uh, either because of my mental state. Um, I've also actually ramped down on watching a lot of movies around. This is part of the reason why, like. This is kind of subconscious because I came up to this morning. I was like, crap, I should have watched a documentary. But like subconsciously, like I'm avoiding stuff that's going to put me in a state um, about slavery, specifically in the history of black people in this country, uh, as I'm realizing this anger and stuff that's going on. And so I'm curious how, but at the same time, it's something that I know I need to watch. Like when I'm thinking about like, how do I show up better for women, for black women? Uh, even more specifically, how do you like any any thoughts? I mean, you gave some wonderful thoughts, especially at the top about like ancestors and how they've helped you work through this. But like, the question is about the avoidance, the avoidance, and the hesitance to jump into heavy content um around oh. slavery in America or the treatment of of black folk in America um my my reticence to to jump into the content I think that's valid I've already done to this point in my life yeah I think it's valid I think I mean granted too we are in some very unprecedented times right mm -hmm. it started off with a or going on what six month now shelter in place lock in something that has been unprecedented for our generation, right? So like, not only are you grappling with the resistance of that, like you're also trying to grapple with this understanding of a new normal, of being sheltered in place in your home with your family and just your thoughts day in and day out, right? There's no escaping that. 
And so when you couple that with this, um, this self-protection of not wanting to continue to like re-injure the wound when it comes to black trauma, like that to me is valid, right? Like, especially given the last, what, mm, let's say the last four years of the, the, um, the amount of black killings that has happened that has gone viral, right? Like it's, it, it, it reminds me of like, when you read about like, the history of black folks in America. And mind you, this is after slavery because like you don't kill the you don't kill the help, right? It wasn't right, or you don't right. kill the work. It wasn't until black folks became free that the lynching started to occur. Mm-hmm. Right. And it may it makes me think of when that would happen, how they would turn these lynching into public events. Okay. Where like they would send out postcards being like, this is this is happening, make sure you're here. And then they'll be standing there with like thumbs up with the body that's been lynched and how I feel like that to me is happening now with how these videos are going viral and how these videos are being constantly shared mm-hmm. on a continuous place on a continuous basis on audio play. And so I think your mind is trying to protect itself. And I think that that's valid. Um, I think that we are in deeply sensitive times right now and people are very, very vulnerable. And so I think you have to listen to what your body and mind is telling you and you have to honor that. I don't think there is a right or wrong way in how to deal with this moving forward because I think everyone is trying to figure it out, including therapists, um, including historians, including filmmakers, like everyone is trying to figure this out. Like there is no right or wrong way. And so I think you have to honor that um, and give yourself the grace and the permission to be like, this is okay. Like the shame that's coming up for you for like not wanting to see those things is okay because we are in unprecedented times right now. And you have to do what's best for you on a mental and emotional state in order for you to show up every day, not only for you, but for your family as well, right? So I think that the first thing is just honoring that it's not just you that's feeling that. And I think when you recognize that and acknowledge that, it gives you space and the permission to be like, okay, so this is valid. I don't have to watch this right now. And that's okay. That's helpful. I appreciate that. How does that make you feel, her saying that? Rodney? Uh, Got to process it a little bit. It's, um, there's a permission and like a, a, a holding of space that I feel. And there's also like, it's just, it's just hard for me to hear because I just, I, I, I try and shoulder everything for everybody, which yeah. obviously I know I can't, can't, should not like can't do, but it's just my natural go-to state. And so like, uh, so then taking that to turn it into holding the space for myself to be okay with it. That's the part where like, I got to mm. like, that's the work for me. And when you're ready, something that I think will help with that is reading Dr. Joy DeRue's book on post-traumatic slave syndrome. Cause that's, mm. that is a symptom of that, right? That's the symptom of this idea that you have to hold space for everything and everyone. But then when it comes to yourself, like we give ourselves little grace and permission to hold space for ourselves. And that, you know, that plays into the whole, the whole idea and the after effects of what slavery was. Like we didn't, you wasn't granted permission to be fucking fully human and to access every emotion on the spectrum. Like you wasn't granted that space to do that. And so that was passed on through generation and generation. So it's really about once again, acknowledging that. Right. And knowing that you're not alone in that process. Um, and then that I think in doing so would give you the answers and the solutions of how you navigate that. You 
adding it to my library <laughs> with um <laughs> with four minutes to that's go not, we not. have one final question but before we get to that and i, I i'm gonna kick myself for that's asking this. Like, i can't even believe where it's i know this has been uh, outstanding um you talked about healing and you talk about it in the movie as well um and i'm not sure um what her name was i didn't take note of it who talks about let there be a million forms of healing however it is that we all need to heal to continue to move forward. Um, the generational component of this, the, the healing, how, what does that look like for you? So Ruha Benjamin said Thank that you. she was like, let a thousand, like let a, uh, a thousand yeah. ways of healing proliferate. Yeah. Um, what does healing look like for yeah. me? Um, to be honest, I'm still trying to figure that out um, because I think that there is no linear path to healing. I think that when we start to think that there's a linear way to it, um, it causes more harm than it does good. I think that, you know, once again, it goes back to this notion of giving yourself permission to be in the ebbs and flows. And so for me right now, what healing looks like for me right now in this present moment is meditation and a lot of prayer. Um, what healing looks like for me is cultivating community around me that allows me to be fully and authentically and unapologetically myself. Because for years, I didn't have that. For years, I created community around me, but it was around the facade of who I thought Ogi was or the facade of who I thought people thought Ogi should be. And so those reflection, those relationships reflected that, which is why they were never nourishing to me, which is why those relationships were never fulfilling to me. And so for me, a part of my healing right now is to stand in the truth of who I am and cultivate community around that. Um, um, healing looks like for me is talking to my spiritual advisor slash therapist every week. Healing for me looks like, you know, giving myself the permission to have days where like all I want to really do is cry because this shit is so heavy. Because, you know, the constant social media engagement of black folks being killed is heavy. It's hard to hold. Um, you know, and I think healing will look different a week from now for me. But I try to, you know, cultivate my healing on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, because it changes. What I need changes. Hmm. Quick question before the last question. Uh on the and I I'm I, sh I I missed this when you were talking about finding a therapist. This is something I like to ask we'll probably edit it back in there is like how did when you found her because you were looking for a black woman you didn't end up finding for many reasons is like what are the like how did you know that this was a person for you how did you go about that search because i think a lot of people finally get to a point where they want a therapist and then finding the right one can take time and it's hard and they don't know how to do it and then they're just like screw it i'm just gonna self-medicate whatever it is how did like how did the process work for you? Like, um, yeah. I think the process. So the process for me in finding her was just like, a how did I feel when I was talking to her? Like what was coming up for me in my body when she was holding space for me? Um, why I was talking to her about the things I was going through, but then also to um, how was she responding to the things that I was saying? Um, in the sessions, what was the guidance or the tools that was being given to me um, in that process? And how did those tools slash guidance make me feel when I implemented it into my life? 
And, you know, after a year, I hit a peak with her. Like I was no longer moving in a direction that felt like growth with her. So I left, Mm. you know, Um, because I understood that if I stayed, that was just me being complacent. And that was really me just going with emotions. And I wasn't trying to do that. Like I'm trying to actually heal and I'm trying to live a life that feels full and abundant. And so when I started to realize that I hit a peak with her, I was like, oh shit, like I gotta find a, I gotta find a new therapist. And once again, like my criteria was that it had to be a woman, particularly a black woman, if not a woman of color. But then once again, I started to realize that like I was putting boundaries around my healing and I was asking the wrong questions. And so for me, the intention then became to find a person that allowed me to bloom organically and that held space for me to figure out and discover myself unapologetically. So when I reframed the intention to be that, I then came across this guy Mm. um, who is like seven lineage of Indian descent. And I've studied almost every religion you can think of. Um, And Eastern religion is to me, one of the most powerful and potent um, spiritual teachings there is, whether it's Hinduism, whether it's Buddhism or Taoism, like those 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 ideologies um, to me don't fall into what we know to be religion, but into life practices. And they teach you, in my opinion, how to show up in life. Like it makes me remember to ask myself, what is it that I'm practicing on a daily basis? Like, what is my practice? And so when I met him, he reinforced that for me. And so I was like, oh, but this isn't, he's not, he's not a woman. Um, he's a person of color, but he's not a woman. And I had to take the limits off myself and be like, okay, like you changed, you reframed your, your ask into an intention and this is what showed up for you. Give it a shot. And this man has literally changed my life, like literally changed my life um, and has created such a profound space for healing to occur for me more than the healing I've had in the past 35 years of my life. Um, I appreciate that because I think that'll help me personally, but I think it'll help other people because one of the things we want to do is share that like for other people to have a framework. I really appreciate the work that you've done, uh, not just in the documentary, but like the work that you've done as a human being is very apparent. And um, it actually helped me get through this conversation because like, I don't know if y'all noticed, but I got real quiet at the beginning. Oh, I noticed. Yeah, I figured you would. Um, Yeah, it was hard. Hard for me to even, like, enter this conversation and, like, be here. So, but you you made it a lot easier for me. Um, So I really appreciate that. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. You guys have been great. Yeah, this has been awesome. Um, Thank you. So our last question, as if you haven't already dropped many, many nuggets of truth and awesomeness, what would you leave with this audience that is now yours, captivated? What would you leave them with? Hmm. What would I leave them with? I would say that I guess like the hope or the intention that I set every day for myself and just for us as a collective is what I would leave. And for me, that is that we continue to heal our heart and souls every day in every way. So whatever that looks like for you, whatever healing looks like for you, um, I just hope and pray that we continue to tap into that, tap into that space, tap into that healing 
um, tap into that restorative care, whatever is allowing you to fully be you or to awaken to the full potential of who you are unapologetically. I, I set the intention that you tap into that every day in every way.